welcome to another United States Studies Center webinar. This one, uh, an extraordinary uh, day for the United States Studies Center. Uh, over 600 of you have registered for this event uh, uh, across the world. Um, thank you for your interest in today's topic and, and in advance, thank you to this amazing panel, uh, this distinguished panel that has, has joined us uh, today. My name is Simon Jackman. I'm a professor of political science at the University of Sydney and the Chief Executive Officer of the United States Study Center at the University of Sydney. And we begin our events by acknowledging that the University of Sydney, where the United States Study Center stands, uh, itself stands on the traditional lands of the Gadigal people, part of the Eora Nation, and we pay our respects to elders past, present, and emerging. I've been the CEO of the United States Study Center now for four years. The mission of the center is to educate Australians about the United States and about Australia's relationship with the United States. And when I took on the role, coming back from a long career in the United States, um, the first thing, one of the first things I discovered was that everybody in Australia can tell you that China is Australia's largest trading partner. But very few people could then answer the question, who is our largest investment partner? And the answer to that question, of course, is the United States. And that was something that I was determined to set about making sure the United States Study Center took a keen interest in that vital aspect of the relationship. So often, the US-Australia relationship is framed through the Capital A Alliance. And, and as important and as vital, as essential as that is, it often leads us to overlook the fact that the lifeblood of the US-Australia relationship is the day-to-day person-to-person contacts and the business-to-business contacts. And when you understand the immensity of the investment relationship between Australia and the United States, now valued cumulatively at about a year's worth of Australian GDP or about the market cap of the Australian Stock Exchange, 1.8 trillion Australian dollars cumulatively. Once you understand that number, um, it puts the US-Australia relationship in an importantly different context of the way it's often framed in popular debate in Australia and popular debate that often leads to a sort of an, an oversimplification of Australia's strategic circumstances. Trade and prosperity equals China, security uh, equals the United States. Uh, life is not that simple. And, and indeed, uh, two reports now that the United States Study Center has produced in the last couple of years, but it critically, one that came out last week, um, served to underscore that point, the value and depth of the two-way investment relationship between the, the two countries, the, the different forms it takes. And of course, that glaring fact about Australian public opinion that I just alluded to, the fact that, that uh, um, very few people uh, struggles to break 20% of the Australian population can accurately identify the United States as our largest uh, investment partner. So today, on the back of us releasing that report last week, that's uh, on, on the United States Study Center website, um, we, um, we are also marking the fact that it is 15 years since the Australia-US Free Trade Agreement uh, uh, was, was brought into operation. And so we've decided to do two things on this extraordinary webinar today, to take a retrospective look 
on how it was that that remarkable achievement that, that set in place so much of the architecture and set in place so much of the, the vibrant trajectory that the US-Australia investment relationship has been on. How was it that that agreement came to be struck? What were the issues at the time? But we also want to very quickly then pivot to the current state of play and some of the issues in front of the United States and Australia in their trade investment relationship. But again, set against the obvious context, and that is US-China, the most important bilateral relationship in the world right now, with immense implications, as we all understand, for Australia, implicating almost everything, not just our security relationship with the United States, but changing uh, almost in real time the nature of our investment relationship as the world of economics and the world of national security are probably closer now than they've ever been. Uh, certainly in my adult lifetime, and, and, and we'll hear more about that in the, perhaps in the second half of today's conversation, some of the issues confronting the international trade environment. And now, look, it's, it's a great pleasure to tell you about our, our panel today, real briefly. Um, we have former Prime Minister John Howard, uh, one of the founders, frankly, of the United States Study Center. It was during his prime ministership that the United States Study Center was founded. And of course, anybody with uh, a familiarity of, of Mr. Howard's term in office will also recall that he's a recipient of the Presidential Medal of Freedom, an extremely rare honor for, for non-citizens of the United States uh, to, to have that honor. And of course, he was prime minister at the time that the US-Australia Free Trade Agreement uh, uh, was, was negotiated and completed. Uh, also joining us, uh, the, Australia's current ambassador to the United States, uh, Arthur Sinodinas, uh, we're also joined by former Ambassador Joe Hockey, uh, who will be uh, moderating most of the event today. We're also joined by Australia's Ambassador to the United States at the time of the negotiation of the US-Australia Free Trade Agreement, that's Michael Thorley. Uh, we're also joined uh, by former US uh, Trade Representatives Bob Zelig, who was in that role at the time of the negotiation of the US-Australia Free Trade Agreement. And we're also joined by Wendy Cutler. Wendy Cutler also served the USTR, uh, but was in that role at a, at a, at a, at a, at a period when the, the TPP was uh, the big agenda item in the bilateral trade and indeed the multilateral <laughs> trade relationships of the United States uh, at that time. And, Look, we're also uh, joined in a little moment by, by, a, um, by a, a video greeting uh, from the Prime Minister. And, uh, and I do want to single out at the top of this call uh, the hard yards done by the Chairman of the Board of the United States Study Center, Mr. Mark Bailey, who did so much of the legwork in pulling together this amazing panel, the most distinguished panel by, by a long shot that I've had the pleasure of, of hosting here in the in about the, the 32 or so webinars the United States Study Center has held uh, in this COVID era. So look, that's more than enough from me at the top of, 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 of this event. It's a remarkable event. Thank you for joining us. Ambassador Sinodinas, can I, can I hand over to you at, at this juncture? Thank you. Well, thanks very much, Simon. And uh, thank you to you and to Mark for pulling the event together today. The US Study Center, I think, goes from strength to strength. And as we were discussing before uh, we came on, there couldn't be a better time to have a US Study Center, given what is happening in this amazing country right now, in this incredible election year, where we've had COVID-19, we've had an economic contraction, we've had racial protests. Um, this 
place has had everything. Uh, and in that sense, it's been a very stimulating time to be here. But what I found from when I got here in February is the incredible goodwill there is towards Australia. And that has several pillars. Uh, one of them, of course, is the long-standing defence relationship and the other elements of security uh, relations that flow from that. Uh, the fact that we've been together as allies or fighting together through all of the major conflicts of the 20th century and fighting, in a sense, for what I like to describe as decent, humane, universal values. And that's important. And, of course, our mateship campaign, which... Uh, my predecessor, Joe, was so instrumental in launching here in the US, really touched a bone because it, it went to that, the nature of that relationship. But the relationship is broader than that. And today is about the many ways in which the economic and trade relationship has developed. And, you know, there was talk about a free trade agreement of some type, even back as far as 1945. It came up in the 80s and the 90s. But when George W. Bush in 2001 decided, and this is before 9-11 or anything else, to raise the issue again, because he found a very trusted partner in John Howard, that's when things really started to get rolling. And that economic and trade relationship has provided the context in which I can confidently go into any boardroom or any company here in the US and talk about the extent of the links between the two countries. You mentioned the trade links, you mentioned the investment links, how big they are. I think of companies like Bluescope here in the US. I think of companies like Visi Industries and the great work that Anthony Pratt and his people are doing. And then others who've come over here in the technology sector, like Atlassian or Afterpay and how well they've done. And it's a reminder that we are treated very well in this country when it comes to economic and trade relationships. But of course, what the FTA has done is give us the opportunity and the access. We've then had to earn it by being competitive, globally oriented and all the rest. That's not to take away from the need for us to be match fit because this market is a very competitive market. The margins aren't always great because of that competitiveness. But if you can make it here, you can make it anywhere. And I say to people, given the diversity of these markets, the population, the income levels, this is a great opportunity for Australian companies that want to be going global or want to be born global. And what the free trade agreement has done is give us an underpinning, a certainty to the relationship. It's given us access that was otherwise going to be crimped in various ways. It's it's helped to protect some of our access as well as expanding some of our other access. Uh, I think of areas like beef, the way we've uh, educated people about the lamb market here and grown the lamb market. Um, the fact of the matter is that since the FTA was enacted, I can't think of us having a major trade dispute with the US. Whereas I can remember, and John Howard will remember, how when we got to Washington in, I think it was 1997, to be shirt fronted, by the Clinton administration over lamb tariffs. This was a measure, to be fair, the administration, I think this was more an act of the Congress, but the fact of the matter was we were faced with this and the Prime Minister had to do a bit of quick footwork with President Clinton in a one-on-one -on -one at the White House before our general meeting to sort all of that out. But my point is that since we put the 
framework of the free trade agreement together. It's provided a certainty and underpinning to the relationship. That investment is now ongoing. So when these 15 years, when we look back on the achievements, Simon's point that we need to look to the future, how do we build on the relationship? We don't take it for granted. I personally believe there's a lot of potential in the relationship on the economic side. I'm particularly interested in the area of science, technology and innovation. I don't buy this thesis of inevitable American decline. We certainly have a rising great power in China, but when you look at the inventiveness, the capacity for innovation, the willingness of this country to reinvent itself over time, and it will again. It faced up to the threats of World War II and invented or was largely responsible for the Bretton Woods arrangements, which gave us the peace and prosperity of the last 70 years. It faced up to the challenge of a rising Japan. And people then were saying, the Americans can't beat the industrial policy of the Japanese Ministry of International Trade and Industry. So there have been these challenges through time, but Americans have responded by reinventing themselves. So for us, betting on America and being part of that journey is important and what we can learn, particularly around innovation, how we apply it to our ecosystem or back home is, is one of the things I really wanna pursue in my time in the job here. Now, I have the pleasure now of um, introducing a video from our Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, who had a very successful visit here last year, a state visit, which uh, my predecessor, Joe, was uh, instrumental in and which uh, you know, has taken on legend here in Washington, I think, about uh, what a great event it was. But coming out of that was a terrific work program as well around how we work together on space, critical minerals, frontier technologies. So there are all these areas where we're working up and developing the future. So without further ado, uh, we're now going to switch to a video from our Prime Minister to welcome us all here today. Thank you. I don't know if you've ever been to Wapakoneta. It's in Ohio, a town of some 10,000 people. It's the birthplace of Neil Armstrong. Now, I was there last September opening the new Pratt recycling and paper plant with President Trump. It's a fantastic facility. What I saw in Wapakoneta was Australian investment and American jobs building prosperity for both. Today you are celebrating 15 years of the free trade agreement between the United States and Australia. Australia and the US understand that liberty and enterprise go hand in hand. No nation grows rich by selling things to itself. Today I pay tribute to the work of my predecessor John Howard, who worked to make the free trade agreement a reality. And I'm so glad that he is part of this important event. As President George W. Bush when he and John Howard met at the White House in 2005 said this, trade will help our economy stay strong. And free trade and fair trade is important for working people in both our countries. It true then, true now. The results speak for themselves. Over the last 15 years, goods and services trade between our two countries has almost doubled. Total investment almost tripled. 
Our exports to the United States include everything from beef to aircraft and parts to pharmaceuticals. And our imports range from vehicles, medical instruments, telecommunications equipment. The US has helped power the modern Australian economy. The US is our largest foreign investor and has enabled Australian companies to access the capital and technology they need to grow. We've returned the favour with the US being the biggest destination for Australia investment dollars, including in Wapakoneta. I saw that firsthand. Our ties, of course, run deeper than economics. There are just so many other layers, whether we're talking about our cultural relationship, our scientific relationship, our defence partnership, our security relationship. The US-Australia relationship has never been stronger and it's never been more important. We are a trusted partner of the United States. We trust each other. And as I said to President Trump last year when we met, Australia looks to the US, sure, but we don't leave it to the US. We do our share of heavy lifting in this partnership. We lead, we pull our weight. I wish everyone taking part in today's event a great day of discussion and insights. And I really want to thank the US Study Centre for your efforts in upholding this great friendship between Australia and the United States. I wish you all the best. Uh, and terrific. Thank you. Thank you, Arthur. Um, and, and our thanks, of course, to the, to the Prime Minister. Um, and I should also add that um, at roughly half time in today's event, we also are honoured to have a, a message of support and some reflections from uh, the Ambassador of the United States to Australia, uh, A.B. Culverhouse. Um, we're looking forward to that a little later uh, in the event. Uh, and it was terrific to have um, uh, Arthur uh, kick us off because I, I did single out John Howard as one of the founders of the US Study Center. But of course, um, uh, Ambassador Sinodinas, or Arthur as he's known to many of us, uh, was uh, Mr. Howard's chief of staff at the time of the founding of the United, United States Study Center. And uh, along with the American Australia Association, um, uh, so critical to the, the founding and indeed the sustenance of the United States Study Center over its, over, its, over its history. And indeed, that takes me to Joe Hockey, who um, um, in his term as ambassador recently concluded was just not only a great asset for Australia, by the way, most, most importantly, but a great asset for the United States Study Center. When we were in town and uh, the full weight of his office and the embassy uh, help the United States Study Center with its networks and the business we need to transact uh, with government and access to people in government and and uh, and access to people in our embassy who are themselves transacting the US-Australia relationship. We couldn't have had the success we've had over the last couple of years without without Joe being such a formidable uh, presence uh, in in Washington. And to that end, I'm also pleased to announce today. Uh, that, that Joe is joining the United States Study Center uh, as a distinguished ambassadorial fellow. Uh, and that's an appointment. Uh, yes, <laughs> that awaits you, Arthur. <laughs> and, <laughs> but no, we are, we are absolutely thrilled. We want to make more use of, of, of the tr tremendous networks that, that Joe built up during his time uh, uh, as ambassador and drawing on his wisdom uh, between now and the election in particular and beyond. And so um, I'm delighted to announce that. And, and I can't think of a better way to hand over the event now uh, to Joe. Over to you, Joe. Thank you so much.
Thanks, Simon, and hello, everyone. And we're going to be a little pithier from now on because uh, we need to get through this and give everyone a chance to have a say. Uh, and uh, we begin with uh, Australia's greatest Prime Minister and certainly someone I was proud to serve with in government, uh, Prime Minister John Howard. I still feel the need to call him Prime Minister, and it's a great uh, American tradition, uh, and uh, he's the only Prime Minister we have live. Uh, Prime Minister, uh, you were uh, the initiator of the US-Australia Free Trade Agreement. Uh, you described it uh, in uh, the 10th anniversary. You said you had real satisfaction around the agreement. Uh, can you just give us a little sense of the history of the agreement as you see it? And importantly, what prompted you to utilise what was arguably the closest relationship between an Australian Prime Minister and a United States President, what prompted you to use that relationship as a tool to deliver a free trade agreement between two developed countries? Before I answer that, can I just congratulate the study centre, Mark Bailey and Simon Jackman on their initiative in organising this. And can I single out two people on the panel, uh, Bob Zillick and Michael Thorley, for the tremendous work they did at the coalface to get this trade agreement on foot. Without them, and they were working day and night together, it wouldn't have come about. So I think it's very important. I'm sure at the head of government level, George Bush was very committed to it. I was very committed to it. Now, the history of it is, as Arthur said, 1945, some people were talking about it. It's one of those things that have been thrown around, but what I think should be remembered, and the Americans on the panel can correct me if I'm wrong, it was unusual to have a free trade agreement like this between two very developed countries. Sure, you had NAFTA, which involved Canada and Mexico, but that had a special regional geographic significance. And it, therefore, there was something of an exception to a rule, and that was a token uh, of the very close an intimate relationship between our two countries. And why did I take advantage? We've seen it's the most natural thing in the world, uh, given the closeness of our relationship, to um, promote it with George Bush. Didn't need a lot of promoting. He was keen to help because he responded very warmly to the support that Australia gave to America in all sorts of ways. I mean, a lot of people imagine that uh, that Americans don't take, uh, you know, tend to take some of their friends for granted. Well, my experience is, is that America has never taken Australia for granted. America has always appreciated the support uh, our country has given to the United States in times of difficulty. I think it's fair to say that the idea of having a free trade agreement was around before George Bush was elected president but it was supercharged. The drive for it was supercharged after he became president. That is incidentally not to denigrate uh, the willingness of, of, of the Clinton administration to work through trade difficulties. I mean, I remember our celebrated encounter on Australian lamb, but uh, I found Bill Clinton a, a good problem solver when it came to the relationship between our two countries. So I remember the the days, uh, the early months of, of, of the Bush presidency 
and we talked about it and, and there was a growing commitment to it. And I can remember that I thought I'd finally got there uh, a weekend that my Jeanette and I spent on the President's Ranch in Texas. And we had a long discussion about a variety of things, including this. And I felt that that really, that particular discussion put beyond doubt the commitment that he had to uh, uh, this free trade agreement. So I think I'll, I'll finish, I'll be, I'll finish by saying that it, it was a, a special demonstration of a particularly intimate relationship that the United States, the most developed country in the world, should see fit to negotiate a free trade agreement with another developed country. It was a natural expression of that very, very intimate relationship. And I look back over the last 15 years and think how the trade scene around the world has ebbed and flowed and changed. And it's been quite volatile. And I say, thank heaven we have got the free trade agreement. Because not only has it reinforced the bilateral relationship between Australia and the United States, but above and beyond that, it's provided um, anchorage in a very, very difficult and challenging trading environment. And the reinforcement of American investment in Australia the, the constant examples of, of, of business figures from both countries doing well in others, and Anthony Pratt's uh, a recent example of that, and of course uh, the most celebrated of all has been that uh, well-known uh, media figure, Rupert Murdoch, uh, who's made quite a, an imprint, not only in his own country, Australia, but in the United States and elsewhere. So I can say that um, it was a natural expression uh, of a, uh, a deeply held relationship, a relationship held very dear between the two countries. And we can thank those who made the contribution. I, I mentioned in particular, uh, Bob and, and Michael and, and, and my former Deputy Prime Minister, Mark Bale, who was the Trade Minister at the time it was signed. I thank them for that because it has provided us with that anchorage and stability in a very volatile and challenging world. And it will go on doing that uh, in the years ahead because it's not going to get any easier. And can I just conclude by saying that we're, we celebrate that also against the background that China still remains our major export destination. And at a time when that relationship is extremely difficult and there's a level of aggression by the Chinese uh, in the context of that relationship we haven't had before, but I hope all Australians remember just how critical the Chinese market is to Australia's economic future. Well, thank you. And the, the evidence of the success of the agreement is not just in trade, but also in investment. Mm. Uh, and investment is now three times uh, what it was 15 years ago, the two-way investment with more than a thousand Australian companies uh, operating profitably over here in the United States. Bob Zellick, uh, you uh, brought to the table not only uh, your political skills and your economic skills, uh, but also a, an astute awareness of the difficult politics here in the United States. Uh, do you want to tell us a, a little bit about what you had to go through uh, in order to get the free trade agreement over the line with a Congress that actually wasn't unanimous in its support. There were Republicans and Democrats that voted against the free trade agreement with Australia. 
Well, thanks, Joe, and uh, thank you, and Simon, and and uh, uh, and Mark, and the Study Center for for hosting this event, uh, including I understand one of my former colleagues when I was at the Treasury, uh, Kim Hoggard, who who moved to Australia and serves on your board, I gather. Um, and it's a special pleasure to be with uh, with Prime Minister Howard and Michael Thawley, who together with Mark Vale really were the Australian architects of, of this free trade agreement. I also want to thank uh, the ambassador, and it's a pleasure to be with my former colleague, Wendy, uh, who then took this idea a step further in the TPP, at least for everybody, but, but the United States. So, so I would like to, I'll address your question, Joe, but I'd like to make three brief points. First, um, a word of context. Uh, the United States' first free trade agreement was with Israel in 85, and then we had, as Prime Minister uh, Howard mentioned, the, the NAFTA Accord in the Bush 41 administration, George H.W. Bush. And so the, the real first uh, concrete proposal of uh, Australia-US FTA was one actually uh, that I put into uh, a re-election document uh, for President Bush 41 in 1992, when I was serving as Deputy Chief of Staff. So it was part of a campaign plan uh, for the future. Um, the initial reaction of the Keating government was, I'll say, cool, um, but we lost the election anyway. Um, so uh, I had the wonderful opportunity, which you don't often have in history in 2001, of, of having a second chance. So I guess I would turn this around for your Australians and say we were trying to you for at least 10 years and you were just playing hard to get on this issue. Um, but as we did so, I think it was also uh, important to recognize we were trying to move forward the broader trade agenda. So this was partly bilateral, regional, and global aims. And over 15 years, some of those were fulfilled, others faded. But I think the point that I would stress is that I always viewed this free trade agreement as part of a, of a process or a platform uh, on which to build. And I think that's still true today. Second point, um, the bilateral aim, as the prime minister said, was clearly to deepen and extend the network of economic ties. And of course that begins with the trade barriers, but we really saw it as something much more. Um, we saw it as trying to encourage the two-way investment and business links. And as the prime minister mentioned, the, the real strategic idea here was to try to connect Australia to U.S. innovation. Um, yes, that's technology, but it goes beyond technology. Um, the U.S. economy, as the ambassador mentioned, is constantly adapting, whether it's ideas, it's systems, it's networks, it's methods. Um, and frankly, we thought for the long-term partnership, the closer we drew that connection, it would assist in business innovation in Australia. We'd seen with the Canadian and free trade agreement, uh, which was passed in 88 and then NAFTA in 93, that you'd had a, uh, a real effect on the Canadian businesses. And as the ambassador said, frankly, if you can compete with U.S. counterparts, you're going to be a global player. And then we also wanted to support more of the people-to-people -people ties. Um, and I'm so delighted, as all of you have mentioned, that the Australians across the U.S. economy and society, uh, if anything, uh, seem more present over the past. Um, it was also the idea that for the future, it was important to have an economic partnership that was a foundation for security ties. And going to the practicality as a political matter, in particular, uh, Michael Thawley and I, with Mark Vale, we didn't want to miss the second chance. 
So we wanted to push very hard to get this agreement done and passed the US Congress by 2004. Um, and what this, I think, important emphasizes, a lot of people have policy and ideas, but sense of timing and action is critical if you really want to try to get some things as done. And that led to some uh, tactical decisions. One of the questions I saw from your audience was, why doesn't this have an investor state dispute settlement mechanism? Well, frankly, it wasn't very popular in Australia and it wasn't very popular with the US Congress. So it was the first time I decided to drop it. And when I got some complaints from US business, frankly, my answer was, if you can't trust the Australian courts, there's not much I can do for you. Now, a more difficult problem, which the prime minister remembers, is that the sugar lobby in the United States is a terribly protectionist lobby. Because in the Senate, you got two senators, we got a lot of sugar states because of sugar beets as well as sugar cane. And I couldn't run the risk that those guys would hold this up. So I couldn't include any sugar even though the prime minister made his best efforts for, for Queensland and others. Um, we had some very sensitive topics that will actually be important for the future. And Michael and I spent a lot of time on the healthcare system, which is actually kind of relevant if you think about negotiations with the UK going to the future and, and the concerns about the National Health Service. This suggests that any area where you have domestic regulation starts to move beyond traditional trade barriers, becomes more of a challenge. And then we had the cultural issue where I really had to grind my teeth because it looked to me like Australian actors dominate Hollywood and now your mysteries are all over our channels. So we gave in on that one too, just to sort of help with the politics. Um, the third point of course, was that we tried to link this to the regional and global aims. And here the point was the free trade agreement that we crafted was supposed to be a cutting edge deal to match the changing international economy. So it was deep on services, intellectual property rights, e-commerce, express delivery, environment and labor, transparency, anti-corruption, investment. It went far beyond the WTO standards. And frankly, we hope that based on the example that our two economies could set, that we could expand it. And that's exactly uh, what Wendy and, and her Australian counterparts did with the TPP. If you look at the Trans-Pacific Partnership, is with 12 economies. So for the US, it was with 11 others. Six of those we already had free trade agreements with. So you added five new ones. And frankly, I think it is very doubtful you could have brought that agreement together if you didn't have the template and the experience that you'd had through these free trade agreements. So frankly, I think if the US had stayed with TPP, and I compliment that Australia did, you would have probably added Korea, which Wendy had negotiated with, and as well as others in ASEAN. And that would have given you some leverage with China, uh, including with some of the Chinese economic reformers on issues like state-owned enterprises and competitive neutrality. Frankly, I also thought that the Australia-US free trade agreement and the type of TPP could help us with models with the WTO, which I'm sure is also interest to, to your audience. There's always been a problem with the WTO, which is that dispute settlement alone, unless you keep the rules coming forward, is gonna probably grind to a halt. So whether it would be as pathfinders or plurilateral agreements, the WTO needs to keep trying to move ahead. And instead, the Doha round kind of faltered in 2008. I'm afraid the Obama administration was a little lethargic and obviously the Trump administration is hostile. So a closing word back to this point about politics and international ties. 
We were, of course, negotiating with a lib nat, lib, uh, liberal national government. Um, but we tried very hard to get the support of the Labour Party leaders. And if you recall, at this era, the Prime Minister will recall, there were some transitions in the Labour Party leadership at this time. This was a difficult time for the Labour Party. And frankly, uh, I was always very appreciated that some of the rising leaders in the Labour Party stood with this free trade agreement and put country over party and, and for the, the U.S.-Australia uh, arrangements. And in the U.S., as you mentioned, Joe, we had a similar advantage, really, because most members of Congress are very positive towards Australia. And at the end of the day, while we were going to have difficult issues, we knew if we could pitch this as voting for a country as opposed to a deal, that we were in good shape. And Ambassador Thali has the best story of that, because one of the most sensitive issues in today, of course, in U.S. politics is immigration and visas. And he wanted to try to put something in the agreement about this. And I was warned off by the Congress. So he went around me and just negotiated separately with the Congress and did something that I couldn't do by working out a special visa arrangement for Australia. So I'd close with this point. Ultimately, foreign policy has to be rooted in domestic political support. And I want to thank the, the US uh, S, uh, Study Center for all the interest that you've had whether it's security, economics, or free societies uh, that look beyond the democratic politics in our countries over a given day. So I appreciate being with you. Thank you so much, Bob. And uh, what a, a, a generous introduction to Michael Thorley, who was the man on the ground uh, negotiating it. My experience is Michael doesn't uh, tend to listen to what he's asked to do and does what he wants to do. Uh, and he did so, thankfully, getting an E3 visa, which I'm on at the moment. And, uh, and it's great that he's here. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and uh, Michael, uh, you were hugely instrumental in helping to whip the numbers on both the floor of the House and the Senate, but it wasn't easy. Uh, do you want to go through some of those experiences and why and what worked and didn't work when trying to convince, uh, you know, people here that the politics is hard? Um, okay, I'll start. Thank you, Joe. I'll start by saying that um, my um, commission from the um, legislative affairs part of the White House was 80 Democrat votes, uh, and, um, and 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 I think Bob, we 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 got there. Um, I, I want to um, just say about Bob what a wonderful friend of Australia he's been over decades, uh, and his knowledge of Australia is is truly very impressive. Um, I used to uh, think uh, that um, I, I, in negotiations with Bob that it, would just, it was just so uh, wonderful to watch him at work. Uh, the only problem was that he was at work on us. Uh, I, I would have liked to have seen him at work on someone else. Uh, he was a very, very tough negotiator, but also someone who kept the, the uh, mission uh, in mind the whole time. Uh, and uh, I think he's been a wonderful partner for us. I want to make an advertisement on the E3, Joe, if you don't mind. Um, like you, I'm here on an E3 visa. We, we're probably amongst the older, uh, me in particular, uh, holders of this visa. But for young Australians in particular, who want to get some experience uh, in the United States at a professional or business level, there is no more wonderful opportunity than this visa. We're the only country in the world to have it. 
Um, there is a quota each year which has never been filled and uh, the, the, the numbers can increase every year if, uh, if people want. We're not limited to the numbers, it's a, it, it can grow. Uh, in the sense that there's 5,000, um, sorry, 10,500 each year and they can, you know, they can accumulate. Um, and, uh, you know, for someone who wants to match themselves uh, and gain experience in the most competitive economy uh, in the world with some of the most brilliant people and uh, most uh, um, uh, fast-growing businesses, there couldn't be a better opportunity. No other country has this arrangement. We're the only one with our special, this special legislation. It means that if you're a young Australian and you are applying for a job, uh, and your competition is, say, someone from France or someone from the UK or someone from Ireland, you're the only person who can say, I can be there in three weeks, three or four weeks. Uh, so it's a wonderful, wonderful advantage. A um, couple of other things I, I, I wanted to pick up on. Uh, to me, the important thing about this agreement was um, uh, amongst the things that have already been mentioned, dealing with the trade problems which were you know, kept on coming up. Um, but the most important thing I felt was that we wanted to create a, a sense for Australia that the US was part of our economic space. You know, that, that that was a place that we could operate in, we had a right to operate in it, and we'd be welcome. And so it's a sense of expanding our vision as to where we could, where our businesses could, cooperate, could, could operate. Uh, and then, of course, as Bob mentioned in particular, you know, the, the, it's investment and uh, technology, uh, which actually are the spurs to economic integration and to growth. And what better thing could happen for Australia than to have an, a, a closer tie with the United States? Um, one final point that I want to mention that I don't think anyone has uh, commented on so far, and that is I felt when I arrived that Australia was lacking a constituency, a political constituency in the US. Um, I was very struck, as others have been, and you mentioned this yourself, by the amount of Australian investment in the US and also the presence of Australians in US business. When I arrived, the CEOs of Ford, News Corp, Westfield, uh, Philip Morris, Vizzy, uh, the head of the World Bank were all Australians. And, and not that long ago, the CEO of Kellogg's, J&J, um, and very senior people in IBM. Uh, and so we had a, a presence which was, uh, I think would have surprised most Australians. But what we didn't have was the sort of political constituency say that Israel has. Um, or even um, Portugal, uh, funnily enough. And it was partly because we hadn't uh, understood just uh, how far-reaching uh, geographically and in terms of its penetration in the economy, our presence in the US market was. And this <clears throat> I saw as a way of creating a political constituency for us. Uh, and I think that's very important because at the end of the day, you don't get anything in a democratic country without really strong political support. And I think the FTAs help consolidate that. It's given us a foundation on which we can engage um, with the business community, with uh, state and local leaders, and with uh, the senators and congressmen. And so uh, it's, I think it's been valuable in, in, a, in a very important and political way to us. 
Well, thank you, Michael. And, and interestingly, uh, the E3 is excluded from President Trump's uh, restrictions on new visas. So you can have a full working visa here, but not be able to get into the United States. Uh, but if you've got an E3, you can get in at the moment. So well done on that. Uh, we are going to uh, talk about the future in a moment with Wendy Cutler, uh, but uh, I just wanted to go back to the issue of bipartisanship. And Prime Minister Howard said at the 10-year mark that it was hugely important to have an element of bipartisanship in order to get these things through. And that was reflected in both the US Congress and in the Australian Parliament. Uh, there's no doubt that Stephen Conroy uh, was pretty instrumental in helping to get uh, a quite divided Labor Party over the line. Uh, I think he's on at the moment. There he is, the handsome Stephen Conroy. Great, great to be with you, Joe. And uh, uh, good to see Bob and Michael and uh, the pro former Prime Minister Howard, who were recently in Israel together. Uh, the Labor Party at the time, I'm sure you'll remember, had a, a leader called Mark Latham, uh, who was fundamentally opposed to the agreement. And uh, that, that gave it unique challenges to try and get it through. But as all of you will know, we had a magnificent supporter of the US in Kim Beasley in the parliament with us. We had Wayne Swan, Steve Smith, and a host of others who, uh, who all knuckled down to make sure that the caucus was uh, ultimately willing to support the agreement. And uh, I, I always remember this, uh, an 11 o'clock at night message from Mark Latham because that was his way of dealing with people he didn't like. Uh, he'd just leave you a message late at night saying, sorry, Steve, uh, read the report, going to be uh, opposing the free trade agreement. So I sent him a message back saying that's going to be a problem because I'm going to be publicly supporting it in the, uh, in the Senate report that comes out in two days' time. Uh, and then an emergency meeting was held. Kim Beasley got to his office before I did. Swanee, Smith, myself, we went to full court press and we eventually, with uh, a couple of amendments, one minor, one, one a bit more uh, major, which I have to tell this as a funny story because uh, Prime Minister Howard's on the line. Uh, we held a press conference at about quarter past one before question time. And Mark Latham outlined Labor's position on patents and uh, the pharmaceutical benefit scheme. Uh, and I understand the Prime Minister had all the country's top experts on patents in there to watch to see what Labor was going to say. Uh, and Latham, of course, completely stuffed up his explanation of what our position was. Uh, and I, I, I've heard the story that the Prime Minister and the patent experts sitting there scratching their head going, what does that mean? We have no idea what that meant. Uh, and we went straight into question time and asked, will, will John Howard and the Liberal Party support Labor's amendments on the PBS? And of course, they had no idea what they meant because Latham had completely stuffed up the explanation. Uh, so he couldn't say yes. So for about two weeks, we had this farcical situation where Latham was advocating something that he didn't understand. And I was trying to make sure that uh, everybody understood that it was this, uh, which was in the press release that I had put out with Mark Latham, and that's what they should focus on, not Mark Latham's absurd misexplanation. Uh, and ultimately, when the dust settled, the Prime Minister uh, understood that uh, the amendment was nothing like Mark Latham had described, and uh, we were able to reach an agreement to uh, support that amendment. Uh, and Labor came on board 
uh, because uh, the Prime Minister showed exactly why he'd been uh, Australia's second longest serving Prime Minister by being smarter than Mark Latham. Thanks, thanks, Stephen. And, and, and that's your support was instrumental. The irony being of the 20 years I was in Parliament for all of the free trade agreements, the US free trade agreement was probably the most contentious. And uh, in the Abbott government, we negotiated free trade agreements with Korea, Japan, and China. And they had a less contentious package through the parliament than the US free trade agreement. So uh, it does illustrate that uh, sometimes it's, it's better to have the fight early over issues like free trade and protectionism and get it out of the way and then start progressing along the line. Uh, we have a, uh, a, before we come to Wendy and talk about the future, uh, we have A.B. Culverhouse uh, to give us a message uh, from the President of the United States. Good morning to those of you in Australia and good afternoon to those watching from the United States. As the U.S. Ambassador to Australia, I am pleased to welcome you to this webinar marking the 15th anniversary of the entry into force of the Australia-United States Free Trade Agreement. I'd prefer to be with you in real time, but I am currently en route to Washington, D.C. for the Australia-U.S. Ministerial Consultations, which I anticipate will be one of the most consequential Osmonds to date. I can't tune in live, but I do look forward to watching afterwards. In the meantime, I would like to recognize and thank our speakers for sharing their insights with us today. Many of you were here at the inception and you deserve our praise. I'd like to express particular appreciation to former Prime Minister John Howard, Ambassador Arthur Sinandinas, Joe Hockey, Wendy Cutler, Michael Thawley, and of course, my good friend and former Reagan-Bush administration colleague, Bob Zellick. Much has changed in the past 15 years since you lent your good judgment and foresight to this worthwhile endeavor. And indeed, much has changed over the past six months. But something that will not change is the United States position as Australia's most important economic partner. Indeed, the day before I boarded the plane in Sydney, I was honored to join Trade Minister Simon Birmingham at an AmCham sponsored event to roll out a comprehensive report by Deloitte showcasing the depth and breadth of the United States economic relationship. That report had some impressive statistics. None is more impressive than this. Trade and investment from the United States contributes about 7% to Australia's gross domestic product each year. That's $131 billion, roughly the size of Australia's mining sector. The United States is the single largest source of foreign investment in Australia by far. There is a reason for this, and it is more than just good business sense. Our dynamic economic partnership is built on trust and shared values, rule of law, transparency, hard work, and fair play. 15 years ago, American and Australian leaders saw an opportunity to advance this partnership, and they took it. Today, 
Even as the future seems unpredictable, we have another opportunity to advance this partnership. Productivity gains from innovative R&D, high paying jobs for hardworking Australians, education and knowledge exchanged and gained. U.S. investment is critical to Australia's future prosperity. We are working together hard to secure critical mineral supply chains on frontier technology and space exploration and on building up the economic resilience of our countries and our region. America is too great for small dreams, and so is Australia. As we look forward toward rebuilding our economies, the United States is proud to be Australia's most important economic partner. Thank you. And uh, AB, uh, who's a fine, fine gentleman, uh, is, uh, is a, continues a long line of distinguished ambassadors from the United States to Australia. Uh, Wendy Cutler was, uh, uh, you know, instrumental in helping to promote the United States position on the Trans-Pacific Partnership. And uh, I enjoyed working with her for a very short period of time, but we were on the same page. We both believed in free trade. We both believed in, uh, in helping to encourage others to come on board, but the politics was beating us all. Uh, Wendy, uh, you know, from both your perspective as a, uh, a very senior US trade negotiator, but also uh, as Vice President of the Asia Society, where to now for free trade here in the United States? I think you're muted there. Thank you very much um, for inviting me to, such, um, to join such a distinguished panel of people who work so hard um, on the US-Australia FTA. It's hard to believe that we're in the teenage years of such an important agreement. Um, I was um, earlier, I think it was um, Ambassador Thali mentioned um, about working with Bob Zellick and how he just worked so hard. And you probably thought he was just focusing on you. But I can tell you, being at USTR, when he was negotiating this agreement, he was juggling so many balls but yet he could keep his eye on everyone. And he always had, I think, a special place in his heart for the US-Australia FTA. So I'm gonna talk more about kind of looking forward and what the US and Australia can do in the region and globally going forward. I think um, some people might um, ask, well, why don't we just work on updating our FTA it's 15 years old. We did this with, the, with Canada and Mexico. We did it with Korea. Maybe we should update the US-Australia FTA. Well, I would advise against that for a number of reasons. I think as we've learned with the USMCA, it's a very time-consuming process. And I'm not sure at the end of the day with Australia if those gains would even be worth it. And second, um, I think in any renegotiation or updating of this agreement, we would probably encounter some trade frictions, which I really don't think is in our common interest, given all the shared objectives we have for the region and globally. And finally, and this is my point, I think we need to really be thinking about how we can take our partnership and set new standards for the region, work together, to create an alternative model to that state-led model 
and work together to reform the WTO. So with that in mind, looking ahead, I wanted to offer kind of five concrete suggestions of work that we can do together going forward, which I think would be incredibly valuable. The first area where I think it's very promising for bilateral work, and I understand under deep conversation between our two governments, is working on a digital trade agreement. Um, Australia recently concluded a bilateral digital trade agreement with Singapore. We have um, forward-leaning provisions in the USMCA on digital trade, as with Japan. Um, there are other regional deals in the region um, in place in this area, and I think this would be a very promising area. So I hope our two governments in the coming weeks can work hard and launch those talks, and they can move forward quickly and then we can work with all these other partners and kind of thread all these agreements together in some kind of regional digital trade agreement. Second, um, with respect to China, your largest trading partner, um, I think right now it's it maybe our first or second largest trading partner. It, it changes every day between Canada, Mexico, and China. Um, I think there's important work we need to do together here. And my specific recommendation would be for Australia to seriously consider joining the EU and Japan and the United States in its trilateral work on industrial subsidies, forced technology transfer, and other issues. We've come a long way with the EU and Japan. Um, all three parties now are, are working to bring other countries on board, and I hope Australia would seriously consider this and the US would make um, a, a stronger effort to bring Australia on board at senior levels. Third, in the investment area, and I have to say I, didn't, I knew two-way investment had increased dramatically over the past 15 years, but I hadn't realized it actually tripled because I always remember from 15 years ago that investment was probably one of the most difficult issues in the negotiation. Um, I think now we have shared interest in investment, particularly with respect to coordinating on our investment regimes, both with respect to screening and restrictions and looking at third party um, investments. Um, we, the United States, we updated our CFIUS legislation last February. Um, we are um, now implementing um, our new regulations. I know Australia has made some revisions to their agreement. We have shared interest here. And I think by sharing our experiences, um, our, our what's working, what's not working, where there are loopholes, which entities we should be looking at, I think this is an area that's very fruitful for cooperation. Fourth, um, WTO reform is an area where we have many shared interests. The WTO is under serious strain. Some say it's in crisis. Um, we can work together with respect to selecting the new director general. We can work together. We are already working together in a number of areas like transparency and e-commerce. Um, but again, I think we can really step up our cooperation. And I think it's really needed now in the WTO um, because of the strain the organization is under. And finally, I would be remiss as someone who worked on the TPP for many years not to raise this issue. 
Um, I think at some point, and I stress at some point, because I don't think we're ready now, that we should work with Australia to figure out, is there a way back for the United States to some sort of TPP? I don't think it can be the same agreement. Frankly, it would need updates, it would need revisions, um, but I think it's, it would be a useful conversation to have. And I'm hoping that regardless of who wins um, our next election, um, that with time, um, our government will realize that there was a lot to this agreement um, and it made a lot of sense with respect to our regional objectives. And I would just conclude in saying our partnership with Australia was so critical to getting that the TPP concluded. So with that, thank you very much. I think there's a lot we can do going forward, um, particularly with respect to the region and to global trade. Wendy, we've seen uh, a, uh, a breakup of multilateral agreements in recent times. And to be fair, the United States has led the charge in the breakup or, uh, or failure to join a number of multilateral um, negotiations. Uh, would it be any different under Joe Biden to what it is under President Trump? I mean, they are, they are both, because, you know, what struck me was President uh, Obama couldn't deliver the TPP and, uh, and uh, both Hillary Clinton and uh, Donald Trump were opposed to the TPP. And there was a strong uh, stream right through, particularly the American Midwest, in opposition to any further trade agreements. So could, if it's difficult to negotiate a bilateral agreement or a trilateral agreement, how on earth could the US lead or be a part of a multilateral agreement? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And of course, I can't speak you know, for, for the Biden campaign, but I will say if you read what he's saying, he, he is placing a premium on multilateral cooperation and working with our allies and partners in all areas, including trade. And perhaps because we have become so inward looking, people in the United States are beginning to realize that perhaps this is not in our interest. And if you look at polling on trade in the United States, there is support um, for um, re-engaging on trade globally, um, as well as just generally for free trade. So I'm not saying it's going to be easy, and I'm not, gonna, and I'm not saying this is gonna happen anytime soon, but I think at some point people may come around to recognizing the benefits of TPP. It was not perfect by any means, um, but there were a lot of um, you know, benefits that accrued to the United States and to the region, particularly as we look ahead and we see you know, where the region is headed. And uh, countries have often used uh, Wendy uh, tariffs and quotas to, you know, as, as tools uh, to deliver uh, domestic political support. Uh, do you think it's any different now to what it was in the past? Uh, previous presidents have imposed tariffs on steel and aluminium. There's always been a constant battle, particularly on aluminium with Canada. Uh, but there's been a num numerous examples uh, where uh, they've weaponized uh, economics in order to try and win political support domestically, particularly amongst key interest groups. Do you think that's going to change as the world becomes smaller 
and uh, particularly retail commerce uh, becomes more prevalent? Well, I think you raise a good point. We're headed more and more to a digital um, trade world and to a services trade world. And there, of course, tariffs um, are not the tool. But that said, I, I think you know, any, any government can find tools in those areas to weaponize trade. But I think what you're seeing on tariffs and quotas is just a growing frustration in the United States about how, um, you know, um, about our position and, and the benefits that we've accrued from trade. But perhaps, and this may be the silver lining, that because we've imposed so many tariffs, I think, and, and American interests are really hurting from these tariffs, perhaps, um, you know, this can lead people to realize that tariffs are not in our interest. And perhaps what we, what we need to do is to engage more with our trading partners and find solutions um, instead of just closing our borders and making it more difficult to trade with us. Bob Zellick, uh, from your perspective as both a former president of the World Bank uh, and as uh, a senior political and economic figure here in the United States, uh, you would have observed that uh, international trade actually was slowing even before uh, the new tariffs were introduced by the president here or uh, even before there was disruption to the, to the global economy. Uh, had the world exhausted its capacity to cop the politics of free trade? Or do you think, what, what is it going to take to bring free trade back to improve uh, the prosperity of the everyday person? Sorry, you're muted as well. Let me start with a Australian US story back in 1947. Uh, I've just finished a book and so uh, I, I went back and looked at this area. When the GATT was being created, original 23 countries, it almost fell apart because the US Congress passed uh, a big increase in the wool tariff and Australia threatened to pull out. And if Australia went, Britain would have gone. If Britain went, the Europeans would have gone. So the American negotiator, Will Clayton, actually came back to see Harry Truman. And Harry Truman gave him 15 minutes and he gave the Secretary of Agriculture 15 minutes. The Secretary of Agriculture said, if you don't accept this wool tariff bill, you're gonna lose up to seven states in the 1948 election. And Will Clayton said, look, we really need to be able to veto this bill. And if you can, lower the wool tariff so I can get this gap going so we can actually shape something for the international trading system. And that's what Harry Truman did. Um, he vetoed the bill and he authorized a small cut. Australia, as is typical, wanted more, but nevertheless, it was enough to sort of get us going. My point is, this depends on political leadership and it depends on political courage. So you are certainly right that the trading system, um, in terms of manufactured trade, it was actually slowing down from 2008 on. The services trade was going quite significantly and is always the case in the trade area. You're gonna get shifts regionally and you're gonna get shifts based on technology like 3D printing. Obviously in the Asia Pacific, a lot of it was driven by China's changes, sort of moving up the value added curve, moving uh, away from some of the traditional commodities, different supply and logistics chains. Supply and logistics chains were changing because it was based less on labor market arbitrage and more on sort of digital platforms. So a second point would be the system is always evolving and both our countries have to keep up with it. And third, uh, 
since Australians like straight talk, I'll be straight with you on politics. If Trump's reelected, you're not going to do anything on trade here because he's a protectionist. He said he's a protectionist in, in his inauguration, and he said he's a tariff man. So you dealt with it. And so, frankly, it was the strength of the Australian relationship that shielded you from all the other stuff that people have had to deal with. But let's take the Biden administration, because I think that's going to be the real issue here. If Biden's elected, he's going to have a very full plate. <laughs> he's got pandemic, he's got economic recovery, he's got racism and sense of inequality, uh, he's got global climate change. And frankly, there's only so much that a U.S. president can take on. That could move the trade agenda a little bit back unless Australia and others figure out a way to connect his domestic agenda with the trade and international agenda. So in addition to the digital trade that sort of Wendy mentioned, I would look to see whether there's ways, whether with biological security and pandemic, whether there's ways on sort of environmental issues that we can upgrade, uh, upgrade sort of global cooperation. And I think there's a chance here because uh, a lot of the, the Biden staff are gonna be uh, well disposed towards sort of international relationships, but they have to manage their politics. And so whether it's Australia, whether it's the UK, Canada, Mexico, other friends, I actually think there's an opportunity if you look at their constraints and try to figure out how you can move this agenda going forward. And Wendy mentioned the other one. I, I'm not in agreement with the administration's policies towards China, which I don't think are producing anything for us other than confrontation. But as she pointed out, if there's a possibility to work with the US on some of the reasonable complaints about state-owned enterprises, forced technology transfer uh, in the WTO, some of the issues such as uh, you know, special and differential treatment, how the dispute settlement system works, there's a chance that you could bring, help bring the United States back into it. And this is where, frankly, Australia has got more leverage than anybody, because you're trusted as a friend. You're respected and you've, you know, you've kind of earned your spurs. And so I'd be thinking now, if Biden get elected, how you can try to work with them, given their constraints to help fix what's been quite a mess. Prime Minister, thanks, Bob. Prime Minister, uh, the um, the United States hasn't faced uh, both uh, uh, hasn't faced really since the British back in the 1700s and early 1800s. They haven't faced a twin threat of an economic challenger and a military challenger from one single country until now. China is both a a military challenger to the United States and uh, also an economic challenger to the United States supremacy. Uh, within that framework, is there any hope that we can have common values across the entire world that still support free trade when you as a, an astute political observer know uh, that you, you can't do anything if you're not in government? Well, my response to that, Joe, is um, to some degree in certain circumstances. But you, you're not going to get some silver bullet that delivers uh, a, a, an enthusiastic return to globalisation and completely free trade. You're not. Because there have been too many transgressors um, uh, to be found in all sorts of countries. I mean, China's a transgressor. China may go to the World Economic Forum in Davos and say, uh, you know, we are the new standard bearers of free trade. Give me a break. Um, 
But having said that, whenever I'm asked to talk about the subject, I encourage Australians to remember how important China is to us as, a, as an export destination. So I don't think you're ever going to go back entirely to that, you know, seen historically now as something of a golden period of globalisation, uh, the first uh, 10 or so years of the 21st century. It was really quite remarkable. And you've got to remember that it covered a period in which more people were lifted out of poverty than at any time since the Industrial Revolution. Now, do I think um, America faces the, the twin challenge of uh, a country economically strong like China and military? Yes, that's an interesting historical comment. As long as we remember, of course, that China's got a few problems. We think the United States has problems. China has a demographic problem uh, of immense proportions. And eventually there, there will be some kind of mod inside China with a growing section of the population who are born into affluence uh, are going to wrestle uh, with being told what to do. Now, there's no sign of it at the moment because you've got the high watermark of uh, authoritarianism under Xi Jinping, but throw forward 20, 30 years. Uh, is that going to be the same when you have a much larger percentage of the Chinese population uh, that is, has been born into affluence and want to say in their lives? So we should not, in looking at the relationship between China and the US, we, we have to look at the pressures bearing on both countries and the pressures bearing on China in demography and the uh, inevitable denouement in relation to authoritarianism and greater liberty are probably greater uh, than are bearing on the United States and the inherent capacities of that country to renew uh, and, and, and its technological mastery are going to uh, continue to stick to it. We will come out of the current political phase in the US. Countries go through phases. Uh, if you think it's the current situation in the US is difficult, uh, I, can, I can remember the decade of the 1960s. It was a horror decade for the United States. And many people said, you're going to get all sorts of problems. But they'll never solve them, but they did. And uh, so I'm, I'm I remain a, a, an optimist. I'm somebody who rejects totally this idea that uh, America has entered a period of decline and that uh, some kind of showdown between America and China is inevitable. I don't think it's inevitable. I think it's possible. But I think if uh, we bear in mind the inhibiting factors China has, the situation is a lot brighter than many people give the Americans credit for. Just coming back to Wendy Cutler for a moment. Uh, Wendy, the president by executive order removed the special status of Hong Kong just a few days ago. Um, and Hong Kong was uh, uh, after, you know, Australia has the second largest trade deficit with the United States. So the US has uh, a, a very its second largest trade surplus is actually with Australia, but the largest trade surplus I think was with Hong Kong. And uh, part of that was linked to the special status of Hong Kong. Uh, the president set the benchmark of trade surpluses and trade deficits 
uh, as an indicator of whether there were fair, fair trade deals. And, uh, and this is a completely, you know, a very significant setback uh, for Hong Kong. Do you see other nations in Asia helping to fill the gap? And what role can Australia play in helping uh, to, uh, you know, encourage the United States to continue to grow its trade and investment relationships across Asia? Um, yeah, I mean, unfortunately, this administration has, as you've mentioned, they're measuring and, and assessing our trade relationships based on, uh, you know, our trade, whether we have a trade deficit or trade surplus. And when you look at, you know, our total trade with Asia, it kind of remains the same, but, you know, things move around depending on where restrictions have, have been placed. So, for example, with Vietnam now, our trade deficit with Vietnam is increasing dramatically. Well, a lot of that's just a result of um, a lot of companies now moving to Vietnam to get out of China um, to move their supply chains. So I think that, you know, that whole um, approach towards trade and what's fair and unfair shouldn't be, you know, based on a trade deficit or a trade surplus. Now for Australia, it's great that you, that we have a trade surplus with you. I think it's kept you out of the line of fire. Um, but I yeah. think it, it is unfortunate that that has become, you know, kind of a, a litmus test. Although with time, you do notice that the administration talks about the trade deficit a, a lot less because I think they realize, like other USTRs I've worked for, that you can do tons of trade agreements. You can open up lots of markets and you still might have a trade deficit. So you don't want that to be the, the, um, you know, the marker on whether you've succeeded or failed. Um, Arthur Sinodinus, uh, in your previous role as Chief of Staff to the Prime Minister and with your extensive experience in Treasury, uh, are we missing something in failing to prosecute the case that tariffs are in fact taxes on your own people? I mean, is, if we just, got so caught up in the weeds of arguing about digital economy and everything else that the instruments being used by uh, people in order to prosecute a case are in fact hurting the people that they're meant to support. Yeah, actually, Joe, that, that's a great question because listening to Bob Zellick before talk about political leadership, um, I think political leaders need to be given the tools to do the job. And one of the tools is to be able to explain exactly what you just said that these tariffs have costs on your own people. And uh, there's been some debate of that here in the US and in talking with the administration, they've tended to say, yes, but these costs aren't as big as people think or it's at the margin and all the rest of it. Well, I think the costs, uh, as you know that from your own previous experiences would know, these costs end up being larger than, than you think. Um, and often they're dynamic costs, not just the cost at a point in time, but it's the impact that tariffs have in creating industries that are inward looking or fragmented. And so I think it's a lot of it is just information and analytical tools. Um, and I think here in the States, what I think has happened is you've had parts of the population who've missed out on the benefits of globalization because of either the occupation, the industry or the region they're in. And they're the sort of group that saw someone like Donald Trump in 2016, who was saying to them, I can sort of restore, if you like, a version of the great American dream of the 50s and 60s, because we'll make things here like we used to. 
and in a, in a funny way, there's a thread from that right through to today where you've got these protesters on the streets or often people who are marginalised, uh, who uh, whatever, feeling the impacts of inequality. So I think part of it is, as Bob Zellick was alluding to, you build a constituency by explaining to people what it is that's affecting them and what are the best tools to help them go forward. Always create a coalition of the willing, a group of stakeholders who are going to work together to get an outcome. And here in the States, Joe, as you found in your time and I'm finding, there are groups in the business community who understand the impacts of these things very well. And I think we all just need to be arguing the case and explaining to people what the economic costs really are. Uh, Michael Foley, uh, has low inflation given political leaders uh, a get out of jail free card to argue for tariffs? <laughs> And quotas. Well, we're well, certainly given given us a get out of jail free card for for um, borrowing and for investing at a time when we badly need to invest. But Joe, I'd just like to pick up. Uh, I don't disagree with what people are saying at all. But I mean, trade is highly political, um, and you've got to move in the area where the politics lets you move, and in the forums that they let you move uh, and they vary from time to time. We pushed, we always wanted multilateral agreements, but nothing was happening after the Seattle debacle under the Clinton administration. So we moved bilaterally. I, I think Wendy makes an interesting point here. I mean, in a, when looking at regional um, and uh, agreements and sort of coalitions of the willing, especially at a time when governments dealing with populist pressures, anti-globalization views, and looking to create national resilience as a consequence, the people are more focused on that as a consequence of the coronavirus and the shortages we've had, and on industry policy generally. So the question is, how do governments do this in a way which we all want to? I mean, there's no country in the world which isn't talking like this, that we need a more effective uh, uh, investment. We need uh, an industry policy, not sort of tariffs and protection so much, but we need to uh, create a growth at home and we need to have a make sure that our economies have a, a breadth of capacity and capabilities. And so we're talking about an industry policy. So it seems to me that what we should be looking at is how do we work together with countries in a way that these things are the least damaging and actually look for opportunities to make these things more um, uh, multilateral or or regional. And in particular on investments, I wanted to pick up a point here, which is I think that we, reminds me that we need to think very carefully about unintended consequences. Um, we, as Wendy points out, uh, you know, we've redone our FIRB rules and um, the US has redone its CFIUS rules and the Europeans have done the same and uh, everyone's too polite to sort of mention it, but basically we're, we're worried about one particular country sort of moving in in a big way and so people are looking to restrict foreign investment. But as a, someone who works for a major long-term uh, investor abroad, what this means is that it's actually more difficult. These rules make it more difficult for us to invest. And what this means is that if, if you have a system which restricts uh, investments by long-term institutional investors who basically have no strings, no, no other agenda in mind other than long-term income or growth 
for their investors often, their clients often uh, retirement funds and so on, then actually what you're doing is you're, you're restricting the opportunity of diversifying your investor base and you're actually leaving yourself more exposed to the very uh, countries or operators um, that you're trying to cut out. And, and that's because we tend to introduce rules on a sort of a non-discriminatory basis because we don't want to say what we're really trying to prevent. So uh, it's just a caution, I think, about um, about some of these measures that we that it'd be far better if we could look at these things on a regional basis amongst like-minded countries who have the same objectives and understand the reality of economic growth and that tariffs and restrictions uh, have to be very carefully defined if they're not going to be counterproductive. Well, uh, on that point, and it's a good point because uh, uh, we now are tending to weaponize uh, foreign investment rules in order to try and get the outcome. I plead guilty, I rejected, I was the first to reject uh, a major American investment in Australia, uh, Archer Daniels buying Graincorp. And uh, little did I know there was a secret agreement between Bob Zellick and Mark Vale. And uh, it was in fact the Obama White House that told us about it. But that's, uh, you can't always uh, trust the people on your own side, I found in these certain circumstances. But uh, thank you so much everyone for uh, coming along to the panel, we are keeping to a strict timetable and uh, it is it, as much a celebration as it is a statement about hope for the future that uh, we can continue to grow this amazing relationship between the United States <coughs> and Australia. Over to you, Mark. Thanks, Joe. Uh, that was such an excellent, informative discussion. I hope those viewing and listening in will join me in a virtual round of applause. There's no doubt that we are currently living in a time that is the most complex and uncertain of any generation that has lived during the past 70 or 80 years. The confluence of three significant factors have caused and shaped this complexity and uncertainty. Firstly, the re-emergence and recent acceleration of great power rivalry and friction over the past decade. Secondly, the global impact of an unconventional US administration, which seeks to recalibrate and rebalance the country's domestic needs with its pivotal global leadership role. Although it may be unsettling to those who see this as something new and unexpected, US volatility has and does occur, albeit infrequently, and is not without precedent over the course of the country's history. Thirdly, and most recently, and surprisingly, the terrible health and economic impact that the COVID-19 pandemic is having and will continue to have for the foreseeable future right across the globe. To put this in some context, it was only four years ago that many considered that the most significant disruption of global geoeconomics and politics was going to be Brexit. Today, that issue hardly rates a footnote. In times of hyper-complexity and uncertainty, there is a real benefit in focusing on some of the foundational underpinnings of why our respective countries have for so long remained secure, prosperous and open societies. Many describe these simply as our shared values. Free trade is one of those foundations and it is therefore very important to understand its role in maintaining our peace and prosperity. It is against that background that the US Study Centre has hosted today's event, celebrating the 15th anniversary of the commencement of the US-Australian Free Trade Agreement. Today's discussion could not have been provided by a group of more highly qualified and authoritative voices on the subject matter. The focus during the first part of the panel on the historic context of the FTA, the trials and tribulations of its negotiation and implementation implementation, the war stories, if you like, 
provided insight into issues at a very strategic level, which provided the impetus for the agreement to come into existence. These are valuable learnings today as policymakers and more generally society tries to navigate its way through a highly complex economic environment. That provided an extremely relevant backdrop to the second part of the panel, which focused on forward-looking issues relating to free trade and the current impediments and potential pathways which exist for its continued expansion. The message I'm taking away from today's discussion is that the 15-year-old US-Australian Free Trade Agreement was a magnificent and consequential agreement, providing material mutual benefits to both countries, and it provides a tremendous foundation on which to continue to build the relationship. As outlined by Arthur and Wendy, there are many important areas of cooperation, collaboration and coordination, which should be continued to be focused on by both countries. A couple of other areas that could be added to the list are better harmonization of our respective capital markets, and once resumed, more streamlined travel access. And we all hope that happens as soon as prudently possible. In this way, we can continue to build a closer economic relationship between our two nations, and in doing so, underpin our collective peace and prosperity. On behalf of the US Study Centre and the people who are currently viewing, I would like, sincerely like to thank the panel participants today. Former Prime Minister, the Honourable John Howard, Bob Zellick, Wendy Cutler, and my good friend, former Ambassador Michael Thorley. Also, I'd like to thank and acknowledge for his excellent role as moderator, former ambassador, the Honourable Joe Hockey, and for his valuable introductory comments and participation, current ambassador, the Honourable Arthur Sinodinus. You have all truly provided us with unparalleled insights and learnings today. Thank you. We are honoured by your willingness to participate, especially those who are based in the US are now well into their usual dinner time. I'd also like to thank and acknowledge the message of support received from Prime Minister Morrison and Ambassador Culverhouse. In addition, I would like to acknowledge and thank the events communications teams at the centre, led very capably by Janine Pinto and Marie Coke, for their hard work in ensuring this event has run as smoothly as, and as well as tended as it is. It is especially pleased to have Messrs Howard, Thorley and Sinodinus with us today, as they were part of the leadership group within the Howard government that facilitated the establishment of the United States Studies Centre at the University of Sydney through the contribution of a $25 million grant to the American Australian Association. The AAA, as it is known, was responsible for the original idea of establishing the study centre, focused on the US located in Australia. Its purpose to educate Australians about the breadth, depth and importance of our relationship with the US. It is therefore appropriate that I acknowledge the presence on the webinar today of Craig Chapman and Ambassador John Berry, retired, both Chairman and President of the AAA Inc, based in New York respectively. And the Honourable John Olson, Chairman of both the AAA Limited, based in Sydney, and the Perth US Asia Centre the USSC sister centre based in Western Australia. In addition, Gordon Flake, CEO of the Perth US Asia Centre is also with us today. I'd like to thank the AAA and the University of Sydney as joint venture partners oversighting the activities of the centre for their foresight and ongoing support of the USSC. I would also like to thank the AAA and the Perth US Asia Centre for their support and promotion of today's events. I understand there are hundreds of registered participants from both the US and Western Australia. Can I also say how pleased I am that Joe Hockey has agreed to become a distinguished ambassadorial fellow for the USSC. Welcome and thank you, Joe. I'd now like to share some further brief background on the USSC. The centre was established in 2006, so almost as old as the FTA. Its mission is to rigorously analyse the United States, provide Australians with a balanced view of the US and an opportunity to learn and gain insight into what is undoubtedly our most important strategic ally. It also exists to strengthen the US-Australian relationship. As our tagline 
states, Analysis of America, Insight for Australia. The centre implements its mission by being research focused, but this is also significantly supported by teaching undertaken by the centre's faculty at, at the University of Sydney across a range of US related subjects and also our ability to convene events such as today's. Its mission has allowed the centre during its 14 year history to educate over 9,000 students, author more than 1,000 journal articles, research reports, opinion pieces and books, and convene in excess of 1,000 events with tens of thousands of attendees. Finally, why should we study the US? I simply say we study it because we can and we want to, not because we must and have to. In that light, I would commend to you our upcoming events, which are outlined on our website, www.ussc.edu.au. Thank you for your attendance, and I look forward to you participating in future events hosted by the Centre.